welcome to the Audible. I'm Stuart Mandel, joined by Bruce Feldman. And Bruce, we have a special guest this week, one of our newer Fox Sports colleagues, but thrilled to have her. You see her on all the games, sideline reporter Shannon Spake. Shannon, how are you? I'm doing well. Not sitting in the carpool line like I, I thought I was going to be at this time to pick up my kids, but I am sitting in a parking garage chatting with you guys downtown Charlotte. There's so much we're going to talk to you about, uh, both doing the job this season as well. But I know you got the big uh, Washington-Utah game this weekend, but we saw you tweeting out, tripped, uh, I saw a picture of Mike Montoro, the the celebrity SID at West Virginia. So uh, what were you doing in Morgantown earlier this week? Well, I flew there yesterday. Uh, so I, I flew there to sit down and chat with a couple of the guys on the team. We talked to Tyler Orlowski, their center. We talked to Skylar Howard talk to Dana Holderson and uh, you know to see where West Virginia is right now considering where everyone thought they would be at the beginning of the season to see what they've done six and oh now going into Stillwater this weekend and then obviously set up to just have I mean they have Baylor at home they have Oklahoma at home this looks like a team who is going to be part of this conversation if they can if they can make it out this weekend I think this is the big test for them I think that they consider that they're part of the conversation throughout the rest of the season and what I find interesting about this team is Dana Kotolgerson told us that they've really taken on the identity of the state of West Virginia and what he meant by that was it's gritty they're blue collar and a lot of the tone is really set by Skylar Howard. You look at his road to Morgantown, where he Juco, you know, went to a smaller school. He didn't get recruited by anyone. And I read this article where his high school coach laughs when he reads that Skylar was not highly recruited because he says he wasn't recruited by anybody. So when you look at like the Baker Mayfields or you look at the Skylar Howards and you look at these, these guys who lead these teams with these huge chip on their shoulders, they go out every time they hit the field, they go to practice to prove people wrong and to prove that they what they knew about themselves all along was true and that's really the tone that that Howard has set over at West Virginia and and really the tone for that entire team and I think it's a, it's a fascinating story to see what those guys are doing and I think we can all agree that West Virginia getting far less coverage attention hype than any of the other you know undefeated power conference teams to this point have they taken that on at all do they feel like they're being overlooked in the playoff race they want that. They want to be overlooked. At the beginning of the season, Dana Holgerson told his guys, nobody thinks that you're any good. Nobody. And it's something that he's said to them uh, in past years as well. But this is the older group who's heard this year after year. And this year they came in and they said, you know what? No, we're going to prove everyone wrong because we are good. And so they, they don't want the attention. They don't want people to start looking at them. They want to go out there and think that people are, they want to be overachievers. And um, and that's that's what they're playing with every time that they go out there. And, and, and they've done a really good job of sticking together. And I think all of the external noise and, and all of those comments have really uh, created a close-knit, tight environment there in Morgantown. Well, it's interesting, even beyond that, it wasn't just the external. Even there's been a lot of talk publicly uh, this offseason about Dana Holgerson and his relationship with the AD and the AD about – whether they wanted him back going into the year. And, and obviously Dana's off to a big year and, and uh, we'll see where his job prospects could, uh, could rest in a couple of months if this keeps up. Yeah, I mean, he's done a great job, too. I think all of us can agree to where he started with, you know, the Grandpa Leach, uh, uh, you know, style of offense and now really adapting to what he has. I actually reached out to Mike Leach before the Texas Tech West Virginia game just to ask him what, you know, his, his thoughts on sort of his two, you know, guys from, from his coaching tree, two guys who have been very close with him. And he gave some credit to, to Holgerson about the way he's adapted with the things that he has around him. And, uh, yeah, and I think it's been interesting to see sort of that, that progression with Dana Holgerson. So moving from West Virginia and one undefeated team to another, which is Washington this week, you'll be calling uh, a, probably the biggest game in the country this week, Washington at Utah for FS1. And to me, this feels like as big a statement as Washington made when they blew out Stanford a few weeks ago. Now Stanford has been exposed. They put 70 on Oregon. Oregon's not good. You know, this is a 7-1 team they're going to face. Does this feel like this is kind of a defining moment in their season? Yeah, I think it's a defining moment for both of these teams, really, because I, I and I, I keep doing research on these teams and, and, and looking at 
you know, where I think kind of the edge could be. And it's, you know, obviously what, what Washington has offensively, their balance and, you know, the guy under center is pretty good this year. Uh, I just think that it's, but I think on the other side, you look at, you know, you look at Utah and you look at Troy, you know, Williams and, and, and I, Joe Williams is obviously a completely different person than he was six weeks ago when he left or, and, and retired. See, I don't really know if you know, if people know what Utah is going to bring to the table this weekend with the new Joe Williams. And, you know, obviously the first game was in some weather this weekend at UCLA, they were able to put up some points. I have, I'm having a hard time figuring out where sort of the edge is going to be defensively. Both of these teams, I mean, sure. UCLA scored 21 points in five minutes last week, but you know, then the defense kind of came on strong and, and, and did what they needed to do. You've got NFL guys completely on the other side of the ball for Washington. It's just a really hard one for me to figure out. I, I'm going to throw this into the, to the mix though. I, I think the elevation might, might have something to do with this. I, I believe that that will be something because it, it is completely different elevation when you go out there to Salt Lake and you'll hear players past and present talk about how that can be challenging. I think it's going to be a great game. Uh, it, I guess it could go either way, right? It could either be great offense on both sides or uh, it can be a defense, defensive showdown on both sides as well. Yeah, there's an interesting storyline here. A couple of weeks ago, I had a Utah game against Arizona, and we had Troy Williams in one of our interviews on Friday, and he had talked about his departure from Washington, and he was a Steve Sarkeesian recruit. He's from down here in Southern California. And, you know, I don't think this is, you know, he's not Baker Mayfield personality-wise, but you could tell uh, he was like, I knew I was not Chris Peterson's guy. I thought I won the starting job, and then I didn't, and I was like, hey, I got to leave here. And he even goes, even my teammates knew, hey, it's better for you to move on. And he got a fresh start in junior college. And um, I'm curious to see how he handles the emotional side of that, because I'm sure it means, you know, this is a big one for him, not just because it's an undefeated team, but because of, you know, his departure from there. Uh, The one thing I would say about him was, you know, we hear all these stories within coaching community about how respected Kyle Whittingham is as a, you know, a competitive guy, as a tough guy, just that's what he was as a college football player and everything else. And I had asked him, which of the players on your team is most like you? And he said, Troy Williams, which was like, wow, that's a huge compliment. You know, and this is a kid who became a captain right when he transferred in there. So obviously he's got the respect. Um, When you, when you're working a game, how much do you kind of invest in the emotional part of the storylines of in your preparation of, Hey, this is the, this is the stories I want to bring into the broadcast with, with Gus and Joel as well. A lot I do. And, and I also love to watch the emotions during the game. Uh, you know, you, you watch Troy Williams run out onto the field and you watch how he's looking across the field when Washington's warming up and if there is any of that nostalgia and or you know or revenge factor in his eyes, I'm certainly looking for all of that. Last week, Troy Williams, you know, like you said, he was an LA kid, you know, and, and when he played USC, a place where he wanted to go, he wanted to go out there and beat them for a lot of different reasons. He told me that at the Rose Bowl when he was 13 years old, he would go with his high school coach, 13 year old you know, Pop Warner coach, and he'd sit in the stands at the Rose Bowl and, and, and watch games and think to himself, one day I want to come back here and play here. He was able to go there when he was at Washington, but he was on the bench at the time. So that was his first time playing in that environment. And that was certainly a big deal to him. This weekend, for me, one of the things I'm going to kind of focus in on is Joe Williams, because a few weeks ago, guys, he was sitting in the stands watching Utah play on this field. And this will be the first time that he'll be back in a uniform on the field, a place where he didn't think he would be anymore ever again. And so I I do believe that there's a lot on the line in terms of those emotional stories. And those do mean a lot to me. I talk to players on the phone, you know, I don't necessarily have to every week. There are certainly times where the, the, the game itself will lend itself to a lot of stories, but I love talking to these players on the phone. I love getting a defensive guy and an offensive guy. And, and if I could get more, I would, because that to me, the players are the stories. They are the ones who are the ones out there. And there's so many amazing stories that uh, exist inside that locker room and on that field. Okay. Well then in that case, Shannon, have you been able to uncover what most of us have not? Why exactly did Joe Williams retire two games into the season? I don't know. I'm going to sit down with him next week. So I'm, I'm sitting down with him next week and, and we'll also talk to him this Friday Everything I've read has been because, you know, he was sore from doing this. He was tired. 
you know, like a little bit of, or most of it could have also been just the pressure. You know, their, their philosophy was if you, if you drop a ball, if, if you don't hang on to the ball, you're coming out of the game. And when we did the BYU game earlier in this year, Joe Williams was on the sideline because he dropped a ball. Maybe the pressure, maybe all of those things. And he just stopped loving it as much as he used to. He said that there was a, uh, there's a motto inside their locker room that says all in or in the way. And he felt like he wasn't the all in anymore. And he felt like he was just in the way. The way he did it, though, guys, I, I just it's so interesting because I did talk to Troy Williams last week. You talked to Kyle Whittingham last week, and there's no animosity. There's no hard feelings. I mean, these guys were like, hey, he came to us. He told us that he just wasn't in love with the sport anymore, and he went. And then when we needed him, he came back for us. It wasn't for him. It was for us. So, you know, we'll talk to him a little bit more about that this week because, my goodness, I mean, if, if anyone has sort of, like the guys said last week, maybe started – the, the, I mean, look, the next level NFL guys are oh, what 500 yards in two games, five touchdowns. So I think it's a really, it's a really compelling story. So Stu, I'm, I'm thrilled we got Shannon. She's one of those people that I definitely admire, especially in my new role as doing sideline. And yeah, you guys should talk shop for a little bit here. I'm going to, I'm going to pick her brain on something. So here, my question to you is what is the biggest challenge you have now in your job and how you do it? And what was the biggest challenge you had, let's say five years ago when you were, I mean, it wasn't like you've only been doing it five years, but how, how has it changed maybe in the last five years for you? I think when I, when I first started doing sidelines, it's just knowing where to put yourself, like where to be, because you, you obviously can't be on both sidelines at the same time. Where's the story? So you kind of have to think a couple plays ahead and think, all right, if the offense doesn't, you know, get their first down and doesn't drive down the field, then this is the second time that they're going to be three and out, the second time that they're going to be two and out. Uh, or three and out, you know, um, that's going to be the side that I want to see. I want to be on that side or the other side. I think that that's kind of been, that was the most challenging thing for me at the beginning. And then you do start to kind of get into a rhythm. And uh, so now I don't know, I don't know what it is now, obviously coming into a a new network and and a new group, we've, my group has been so great. I I love working with Gus and Joel. I, I love learning from those guys. It's been so much fun, but I think finding my, my place, and, and when I can contribute to what those guys already bring to the table. But it, it's, we, I, it's been so awesome this season. You know, how can you not love listening to, to Gus Johnson in, in your ear and, and hearing what he's saying? But um, I, I think that that was the biggest thing for me early on is Bruce is just, you know, figuring out where to be, which side of the, of the field to be on. One of the adjustments for me, dealing with loud, loud crowd noise, you know, you do your hit on camera, either right after kickoff or right before it, where a sound system from the stadium is blasting. And it's fascinating for me to watch people who are, you know, what I would call real professional sideline people who've been doing it like you have and just see that it's like, it doesn't seem to affect you guys at all. And you kind of become numb to it or that's the way it, it, it seems. You know, I, when I go and talk to journalism students I always tell them that if they do want to get into this business it's all about eliminating distractions and I will bring every distraction possible and things that you you might not even realize that that women have to deal with their hair you know if it's windy out there and your hair is whipping around and it's in your face and you're trying to do an open that that has a whole new element if you're uh, you know, and, and obviously you mentioned the noise and what people don't realize is in, in our earpieces, we not only have the external noise of the band and, you know, when I was in racing, you'd be doing like an, uh, a report from the garage and it was inevitable. As soon as that red light went on, they would be testing the timing on the cars, which means that's when they basically hit the gas as long for as long and as hard as they possibly could. And it would be right next to you and you'd be trying to do this report. You couldn't even hear yourself think, but it's, it's out side noise obviously and then you have your producers you have your producer in your your right ear you have you know joel and gus or or whoever your play-by-play and analyst guys are in in your other ear so there's all this stuff going on and like you said you then have to look at the camera and make it seem as calm as possible (laughs) so um yeah it's it's uh it's it's eliminating distraction is is what our job basically is and then, oh, not, not to mention football flying around, because I have been hit before by a football 
players running at you. Don't ever turn your back to the to the field. And then you want to you want to try to get your report in before the ball snaps, so you can throw it back up to your guys, and so they could do what they're best at. Okay, on that very point about getting it in before the snap, you're dealing with some of the most up tempo offenses in the country. At ESPN, you did you know all number of conferences. I know the SEC quite a bit. You know, has that been an adjustment just dealing with? Oklahoma, you know, some of these teams that run 100 plays a game. You just have to know going into the game what you're going to deal with. You have to know that it's going to be quick. And, you know, a lot of times my producer, Chuck McDonald, like, we'll just test it out. We'll, we'll wait for a couple of series to see how fast Oklahoma is going to be going or how, how fast Baylor is going to be going. And you got to just know that, okay, we're going to have to do it coming back from commercial break because we can't do it once they, they start this drive because they're just going to go and you're not going to have any time. And, you know, then if you do try to force it in, it's going to, the story is going to sacrifice. You could mess up because you're trying to rush to get it in. And that's not what you want to do either. So it's, it's just, it's just testing it to see how fast they're really going to go and trying to find the right places. But that is absolutely a, a, a real thing. As you do, you want to get it in before the snap. And uh, you know, that can be challenging, in this, particularly in the Big 12. So, Shannon, you know, as sports writers, we would often do the, you know, we're down on the field sometimes after games. But if, if one of us asks a stupid question or what we think is a stupid question, pretty much nobody knows but you and maybe the, the athlete or whoever or maybe the person next to you. Whereas, you know, you're doing it on live national television. And it's often, like you said, somebody is in your ear. There's a lot of stuff going on around it and everything. Um, how often do you find yourself, you know, two minutes later going, why did I ask that? I should have asked this or, or whatever, because it's just so much in the heat of the moment where you got to react and, okay, now I'm going to talk to this guy and I got two questions and it's just, you got to go. I would say 90% of the time, 90% of the time I, I say to myself, was that the right question? Oh, 100% of the time I asked myself, was that the right question? And I would say 90% of the time I, I'm like, all right, maybe I should have asked this, or maybe I should have asked about this, but you have two questions or three questions. And so you have to pick and choose. And so I'll, I'll and that's one of the things I'll, I'll debrief with my guys, you know, I'll debrief with Gus and Joel. I'll debrief with my producer, my director. I'll ask for feedback. I'll go back and watch it. And so it's, it's that all the time. I, and that's, that's the toughest part of our jobs, I think, is asking the right question in two minutes and in, in two questions in, in, in a concise way, because obviously you want to get the question in before I've had plenty of coaches <laughs> who, you know, you've got three words before he starts to answer whatever he wants to answer. <laughs> mm-hmm. So you got to make sure that you start to get it in. Um, but yes, I, that's 90% of the time I, I, I question as to whether or not it was the right question uh, or, or phrase the, the right way. All right. So now I'm going to ask for some advice for Bruce, cause he's probably too modest to ask this. Shannon, you are probably the, the most fit reporter in all of sports, right? I mean, you, you oh, have these pictures of... Oh, I don't know What's that? I don't know about that, but thank you. I, I, I do a lot, I would say. I'm, I'm constantly, really? like, doing something in terms of, of something athletic. Well, you, you run the stadium steps of every stadium you do a game at, correct? I do. I'm currently uh, getting ready to hit 30, 30 stadiums and arenas. Wow. So I've done 30 different ones, yeah. And, and you run triathlons. Yeah, I do. All right, I ask all this. <laughs> it just be- means I'm crazier than everybody else, not Twitter. <laughs> this is all a long way of asking. When Bruce does these sideline games, I that night or the next morning, he we talk, and he sounds like he's run through a marathon himself. He's exhausted. He's you know what it is, Shannon. It's the it's early in the season, especially you know whether it's Arizona or wherever you are. You know, we're out there two hours before the game, and we're out there at halftime, too. So you're basically out there for six hours in the sun. Now, I know you're from Fort Lauderdale and everything, and maybe you're, 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 you're uh, a little more better conditioned for that, for the sun as well. I mean, I live in California. I shouldn't complain. But it's, it, it is actually exhausting to me to be out just six hours in the sun on my feet, it, more than the running around part. Like you can't close your eyes because your eyeballs are burned. It is an exhausting process. I'm going to guess you come out of there feeling perfect because you're so in shape. I'm trying to get you to say that Bruce isn't in shape enough. I wouldn't say that I'm I'm perfect. I'm pretty beat at the end of these days. Um, but I bounce back a lot quicker, I think, because of how much I do. So, uh, you know, get up on the plane. And, guys, i got to come home. i got twin boys. 
So I don't, I don't land on Sunday and have the option to like lay around and, and watch football. I have twin seven-year-old boys who, as soon as I land, their 50 pound bodies are in my arms and hanging on me and, and, and I'm, and I'm out and I'm mommy. So uh, that's, that's one of the reasons I do everything that I do is in order to maintain the pace that I do because being on airplanes all the time, sleeping in hotels, maybe not necessarily eating the right foods when you're on the road or the right amount of food, I would say, because like you said, Bruce, I mean, we're down there, right, for six hours. You're not mm-hmm. eating what you're supposed to eat. You're grabbing a bag of chips or you're eating an apple and that's all you're eating all day. And so I feel like I have to do the other things in order to in order to be able to come home and, and be mommy and do what I have to do when I come home. I was just thinking about the crazy coincidence that of our three uh, season-long college football sideline reporters, two of them have twins, young twins. Yes, My we crew do last that. year at ESPN, there were four of us on my crew that had twins. Wow. We were like literally the most fertile college football group <laughs> out there. <laughs> That's crazy. Um <laughs> You mentioned uh, you mentioned obviously working with Gus and Joel. We love both those guys. Bruce and I have worked with Joel awesome. quite a bit. We love Joel. But Joel came on our podcast before the season and went on two epic rants. Uh, one about an ESPN broadcast the week before. One about Tim Tebow playing baseball. And boy, did they get a lot of traction. Um, it's become kind of a running joke at Fox that Joel is an angry person. And I'm wondering how that comes off when you guys are traveling, does he just randomly go off about restaurant service or things at the game or, or whatever? No, because he's not mean. So like, he doesn't go off about like restaurant service, knowing that that could hurt someone's feelings. Right. But I think Joel is self-admittedly will at times, like he's, he, he has like moments, but it's not like malicious moments. I think we all have moments, but I, I think he's, I mean, fantastic he's, he's so much fun to be around. And he's, he's, a, I, I see his preparation style is a lot like mine and the structure, I think that he, that he creates in his life leading up to the game is a lot, a lot like the way I work. You know, I'm up at 9am or 8am, whatever, every Friday morning on my way to the stadium to do stadium stairs, to come back, to take a shower, to go to coaches meetings. You know, the morning that I wake up, like I have a routine and so I don't know. I, I think Joel's rants are awesome, though. But I tell him from time to time, like his rants are are awesome. But he's not malicious in the way. So he's not going to like bring somebody at a restaurant about you know the fact that they brought him tap water instead of sparkling. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, it would be awesome if he did. He's passionate. So Shanna, you've done motorsports. You've done college hoops. Obviously, you're doing college football. Which personality, whether it's coach, driver, player? has been the most interesting to you to cover? I'll have to pull from this season because I, let me think. Well, John Calipari is always great, right? And you just never know. You talk about those halftime interviews and those post-game interviews. Like you really just never know what you're going to get with him. And I built up a relationship with him over the five or six years that I worked in the SEC and with the fan base there and, and with everybody on that team and spent so much time around Kentucky that it was fun more fun for me when I would go into those interviews than it would be kind of, um, I guess, anxious or anxiety, not knowing what you're going to get. Like I was looking forward to what he would say. So I think he was one. I love, I love um, uh, Baker Mayfield this season. I, I have so much fun watching him down on the field when he is out there warming up or just doing his thing. I just think his personality is so much bigger than everything. And, and I love that uh in players when you see that i'm a huge fan of bill self at kansas once again his post-game interviews are so honest it just feels like you're talking to someone sitting at a bar rather than on a court at halftime you know as he's leading his team so there's been a lot and then you know nascar the thing about nascar that is unlike any other sport that you work is that you spend so much time with those drivers that you almost become part of their family. And I've always said this family oftentimes will say things to other family members that maybe they wouldn't say to a stranger because they know they'll be back next week or they know that they'll be at the dinner table tomorrow night. So you get, you know, across the board. And it's also the only sport that you literally stick a microphone in someone's face as soon as they walk out of an infield care center after they've been in a car wreck 
going 170 miles per hour, which any of us, like if we normal people were to go through something like that, we would be destroyed for, you know, I mean, you know, you'd have, you'd have dealing with it for days and days and days. And we put a microphone in, in their face and get this raw emotion. And it's just, um, it's, it's unlike any sport that, that I think that you'll ever cover NASCAR. It's, it's, it's great and fun, and you do become a, a true family with those guys. We haven't talked much about NASCAR in here, but that is your bread and butter, right? People, I'm sure we have NASCAR fans listening, and they know you well and, and look forward to you joining Fox's NASCAR coverage soon, correct? I can't wait. I I didn't grow up a NASCAR fan, and you know, and I that's 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 public knowledge. But I covered it for ten years at ESPN. And, and at speed, my first season, and spent so much time in the garage. I've been to every single track, let's see, 10 years, twice for, for the majority of the tracks, so 20 times, and spent so much time around these guys. And it's been so cool to see the evolution of the sport. When I first got into it, you know, it's like these drivers, now they're parents, and, you know, they have two or three kids. But back in the day, it was like Jimmy Johnson was, you know, 20-something years old, and and uh, I went, I was actually pregnant at the same time as probably eight to 10 of the wives that were pregnant with their first children. And I was pregnant with my first kids. And so it was a really cool time to be in the garage. I remember that I would be during the races, I was 28 weeks pregnant with an expandable fire suit, just mm-hmm. basically standing next to the porta john because I knew at any moment I was going to have to use it. And, uh, <laughs> and Carl Edwards' wife was pregnant at the same time, and we were the exact same, uh, same term, length in our terms. And we would literally be standing there like eating Doritos behind Carl's pit. And I remember just like looking at her thinking, isn't this like (laughs) just great? (laughs) I would do my open report and literally sit down on, on tires. And yeah, I mean, I was, I was so like so much weight in my stomach and I have so many pictures of me sitting on these, you know, Goodyear tires, holding my microphone, writing notes, like on pit road uh, in my expandable fire suit. (laughs) And when I was in, homestead it was the last race of the season just happened to be the last race that i could travel for i went to the i went into the restroom and i was looking in the mirror and i could kind of see my stomach just a little bit underneath my my uh maternity shirt and i just remember thinking all right i made my point it's time to go home (laughs) (laughs) it is time to go home and nest that seems like (laughs) one of the in a nascar garage (laughs) yeah that seems like one of the least comfortable places to possibly be uh that far into pregnancy I thought it was actually for me because I got, I had fresh air. Like I know that being in the garage around like the fuel isn't the fresh air, but being outside on pit road and being out, you know, just kind of always being outdoors. I think it really helped me with my pregnancy. So everybody, you can follow uh, Shannon on Twitter, her name, Shannon Spake. And now that you know more about my pregnancy than anybody else, <laughs> <laughs> please tweet her questions about her pregnancy. No, uh, yes. <laughs> you can see her uh, this Saturday, Washington, Utah, 3.30 Eastern, FS1. Cool, yeah. Where are you this weekend, Bruce? I have Stanford, Arizona. The game is on in the middle of the night, essentially. When you're waking so up to go to the airport, Shannon, you'll be able to catch the end of this Stanford-Arizona game. Yeah. What's sure. going on with Stanford this year, huh? No offense. No offense. I had somebody there text me uh, Saturday. Stanford's defense has scored 11 points the last two weeks, and the offense has scored 10 points. So, yeah, it's amazing to see, you know, David Shaw has had such a great run there, but this year it just doesn't seem to be going. They've switched quarterbacks. They're 2-3 and three in, the, in the conference. It's a, it's a head-scratcher. I mean, Stu lives up there, correct? Yes, I do still live up here. <laughs> Yeah, it's uh, it's a shame with you know with, with a guy like McCaffrey. Yeah, I mean it, it is. It's true. Like he was one of the most exciting players in the country last year, and everybody was all excited about him coming into this year. And between injuries and the rest of his offense basically sucking, uh, he has not gotten to do much. So. Um, and he's so much fun to watch. He's another one on the sideline. My goodness, he ran by me. We did that Can- uh, Stanford Kansas State game at the start of the season and when he returned that punt and I mean like afterburners like I've I've never seen it was like a a blur (laughs) it tells you not you know you can't uh overlook the value of an offensive line and certainly last year they had a fourth year quarterback that is a big part of why he was able to break Barry Sanders record all right Shannon we'll talk to you soon take care all right guys
All right, we'll get back to the podcast in a second, but first we want to tell you about our sponsors this week. The first is Identity Garden. Bruce, I've asked you this question before, I'm going to ask it again. Have you ever lost or thought you lost your phone? I have. It's a terrible feeling still. It is. It's awful. Even if you found it in five minutes, because if you're like me, your life is on that phone. Well, guess what? Identity thieves know that too. And when your lost phone winds up in the hands of an identity thief, it can be the beginning of a disaster financially, emotionally, even physically that could take years to unwind. That's why you should protect yourself with Identity Guard. With Identity Guard, you get protection from a company that's been in this business for over 20 years, one that's helped protect more than 47 million people. Identity Guard continuously monitors millions of transactions and articles, sends you the news, tools, and guidance you need to minimize your risk. Plus, if you were to become a victim of identity theft, Identity Guard's victim recovery specialists will be there to help you through the recovery process. Identity Guard even offers identity theft insurance with coverage of up to $1 million. So get the identity theft protection service that's right for you. Visit Identity Guard at identityguard.com slash podcast. Okay, Stu, this is probably my favorite product. It is Dollar Shave Club. You do not need to choose between price and quality, Stu, to get amazing and affordable shaves. DollarShaveClub.com is the answer. To prove how amazing their shave really is, right now they're going to give you your first month free to join the club. How about that, Stu? That's awesome. It is awesome. DollarShaveClub.com delivers amazing razors right to my door for a third of the price of what the greedy razor corporations charge nobody is greedier than razor corporations no question about that i know uh seriously i have no reason to deal with the drugstore hassle and battle the locked up razor fortress ever again it's an awful thing that is and neither you or anybody else do will have to deal with it again if you join the club just go to dollarshaveclub.com and pick a razor that works for you from their lineup of amazing blades. That's all there is to it. I got a first-class shave when I use the executive blade, and when I use it with their Dr. Carver Shave Butter, the blade just gently glides for the smoothest shave ever. By the way, Stu, I shave twice a week now. It's, it's so easy. And one of the best parts for me is I love the way it smells. I love the way it smells. Joel Klatt loves the way it smells. I mean, it just... It puts everybody in a good mood. So here's your chance to see why 3 million members like me love Dollar Shave Club. Dollar Shave Club is so confident in the quality of all their products. Now you can get your first month free. Just pay for the shipping. After that, it's just a few bucks a month. I mean, that's like half a beer, basically. No long-term commitment, no hidden fees. There's no reason not to do it. Get yours at dollarshaveclub.com slash audible. That's dollarshaveclub.com slash audible. All right, mailbag time. It's the mailbag from a computer. So not literally a bag, but just mail. Okay. Wow, Stu. I think this is a one of the longest distance emails we've gotten. It is from Ryan in Kenya. It is cool how many people email the podcast to say they're listening in Spain or Switzerland or Kenya. Um, we're very global. Yeah. Uh, okay. So this is Ryan's question. While Ohio State has clearly been the top dog in the Big Ten since Penn State joined in 1993, why is it that Michigan is the only team frequently mentioned as the Buckeyes' peer? Penn State has beaten Ohio State more than any other Big, Big Ten team since 2001, five times while Wisconsin is actually second with four wins, and the Nittany Lions and the Wolverines are tied for the most wins over Ohio State since 1993 with eight each. Shouldn't people talk about the big three instead of just the big two in the conference? You know, it's interesting. It just shows you how anybody can pick a set of facts to make a case. He made a very convincing case there that they should really be called the big three. I'm going to give you a nugget right now off the top of my head that would maybe tell you otherwise. Do you know that Penn State has won the same number of Big Ten titles since joining the conference as Northwestern? Ouch. Um, you know what? I think, you know, towards Ryan's point, 
I do remember a while ago, and I mean, it is a while ago, and we're probably talking about a dozen years ago, where I felt like it was thought of as the big three. Yeah, when Penn State joined the conference, I mean, they were, it was peak Penn State under Joe Paterno. It was their, no question, they were a national powerhouse. And so, yes, I mean, the, the, the feeling was you had the big three. Now, starting around 2000-ish, Penn State went into a bit of a tailspin. They had four losing seasons in five years. Joe Pa survived that. And then, of course, you had the Jerry Sandusky scandal, where I felt like at that point, from that point forward, probably up until this past Saturday, it felt to me like Penn State was completely off the map, just completely irrelevant, never came up much in many conversations outside of their own fans. Saturday was a reminder that there's this school up in the middle of nowhere that has a 100,000-seat stadium and often, you know, over the years has been very highly ranked nationally and, and on Saturday delivered a huge win. And I do think the potential is there for them to build that and, and get back to that under James Franklin. Do you think this was a fluke or you think this is, because I, I think as we said the other day, they have a realistic chance to actually go 10-2 and two this year. Yeah, and if they do... And, and even if they even if they go nine and three, but then win the bowl game, they're going to finish with a really good ranking. And they have not finished a season in the top twenty-five since two thousand nine. So you know, because they beat Ohio State, does not mean that they are Ohio State. Obviously, Ohio State's recruiting at a whole other level. You know, with Michigan, if we had had this exact same question two years ago, I mean, nobody was talking Brady Hoke era Michigan. Nobody was talking about them being on the same level. But the the tradition is so steep. And Ohio State and Michigan are so associated with that conference that even as they were struggling. And that they are intertwined for so long. So even long. as Michigan was struggling all those years, um, I didn't feel like they became, so they didn't fall as far off the map as Penn State did. You know, the one that, that we're not mentioning here is Nebraska. Nebraska 7-0, and ranked in the top 10, I believe. Mm-hmm. And I still don't feel like you hear about them the way you hear about Ohio State, Michigan, and even Penn State. Because their best win so far is at your alma mater, uh, who's a 4-3 and three team. But I don't, I don't mean specific to this season. I mean in general. If the Big Ten had added Nebraska in 1995, it would have been absurd. You would have had four of the you know most prolific programs in the country. And now it feels to me like people don't view Nebraska all that differently than they do Wisconsin. Uh, I think that's true. If you were to go back and look, let me ask you, when was the last time Nebraska finished in the top 10 or won 10 games? Could you guess without wikipedia it or whatever? I mean, I know that the last time they played in a BCS game was 2001. The last time they won a conference title was in 99. 10 wins. Did Bill Callahan do it once? I know. They won 10 games with... Uh... With Indomitian and Sue? Yeah, with Indomitian and Sue, they played Washington in the holiday. Yeah, Bo Pelini lost four games every year, but at least one of those was 10-4. and four. Actually, Stu, Bo Pelini had three 10-4 seasons. Now, despite winning 10, 10 games, he never cracked the top 12 or top 13. Uh, I think you'd probably have to go back to that Frank Solich team that got got smashed by Miami in the national title game. Well, the next two weeks are going to be huge for Nebraska football, you know, at Wisconsin, at Ohio State. They could lose both, and people won't be talking about them probably the rest of the season. They beat, if they win this game this week, they're probably going to win that division and play in the Big Ten title game. And if they lose this week and beat Ohio State, um, they may not win the division, but man, that would be a huge win for Nebraska football. Well, we'll see. I think they're a pretty good team, but I don't think they're. A, I really don't feel like they're a legitimate top ten team at this point. This is from Marco. Love the show. I know that in the last podcast you listed some coaches for certain schools. One name came to me that wasn't mentioned, and I wondered why. What are your thoughts on Kyle Whittingham going to a school like Texas or LSU, a school that has more resources than Utah? I know in the past Kyle had a tough time retaining his assistants. Due to the lack of money, would love to hear your thoughts, gentlemen. I think he'd be a potentially interesting fit at Texas. You know, I think he's a really, really good coach. The part at LSU to me that I'm not sure, you know, makes a t- makes that much sense is if LSU is going to really, you know, make this big coaching move and get away from from kind of where they've been. I think they would go for an offensive-minded guy, 
And that's not Kyle Whittingham. You know, I think a lot of people would struggle to name who his offensive coordinators have been. So, yes, he's a really good coach. I just don't know about the fit there. Um, you know, I'd be curious to see what he could do at a place like Texas. I actually thought USC should have considered him last year. When they fired Sark halfway through the season, his name immediately came up, was one of the most commonly mentioned ones, because if you remember at the time, uh, Utah had just beaten Oregon 62-20. They were very highly ranked. This team is, has not gotten the early season buzz that that one did, but if they beat Washington this week, they might move into the top 10, and uh, I think you will start hearing that kind of buzz again. Yeah, I think that's entirely possible, and you know, deservedly so. I think this is our most prolific emailer, at least our most successful one. Jason Gorlewski writes, What do you consider a more impressive coaching performance? Nick Saban, where he has all of the recruits and facilities, but they never disappoint. They never have the four or five loss season where guys are taking lumps and are always in the title hunt. Or Mike Leach, who has never won national titles, but is racking up some serious wins at Washington State. He also had Texas Tech rolling back in the 2000s. When has either of those programs been seriously relevant? Well, Washington State was relevant under Mike Price. They went to two Rose Bowls, but they were irrelevant for a long time. And look, there's no question he's a good coach. I mean, look how hard a time Cliff Kingsbury is having at Texas Tech now. It's not so easy as just roll out that offense, but... Nick Saban's on a different level. I know. I get it. People sometimes will say, well, he's got all the resources. He, he can recruit whoever he wants. But so can Texas, and they can't get out of their own way. So can USC. So can a lot of places. It is so hard to not just win, but win at that level every single year. Never have that drop-off year. Never have that things are off. And I mean, things that are happening right now to to Michigan State, to Stanford, you know, after years of success things aren't going their way they he has yet to have that bad season yeah i mean as soon as i saw the name nick saban i don't care who is on the other side of the or it was going to the answer is going to be nick saban just for what he's been able to do and sustain it is remarkable um i've said this before and i will stick to it i think he's the greatest college football coach that has come along um but let me twist this a little to you Stu. let's take nick saban out of this who do you think is the best college football coach that has never won a title. Is that currently or ever? Because let's say currently, the ever was too hard to kind of sift through. I mean, you have to say Harbaugh. He hasn't won a national title. I don't think he's even won a conference title. But I do think he's the the holy trinity right now of college football coaches is Saban, Meyer, and Harbaugh. Yeah. Yeah, I guess that's an easier question than I thought. I would totally agree with you on that. Michigan State fans would beg to differ, but after this weekend, they, they may not have a choice. Um, hi, Stuart and Bruce. Love the show as always. This is Jason Higgins from Seattle. My question is about undefeated teams from the group of five. Right now, according to Sagarin, undefeated Boise State currently has a much better strength of schedule, 61st, than Power 5 unbeatens Nebraska, 72nd, and Washington, 85th, while Western Michigan, 95th, has a much better SOS than Baylor at 114. Why would a 13-0 Boise be hardly considered for a CFB berth? And related question, why are group of five schools even part of FBS if they have no real path to the championship? That latter point is a good question. I think they have a remote chance. If, if Houston had won out, they're a group of five school. I think they would have had a real chance to get in. Uh, now, I would say, you know, what he's talking about now, Baylor's schedule is about to get much, much harder. So, and whereas Boise State's is probably not going to get any right. harder. Boise State's is, is at its peak right now. That number will only go lower. Nebraska's, Nebraska's about to go to Ohio. To go higher. Yeah. Yeah. Nebraska's about to go play Ohio State. Uh, they have Wisconsin, so their schedule is going to get much harder. So I, I think that that changes things. Whereas a Western Michigan, once you get in the once you get in the in the weeds in the MAC, um, you're not springing up in the top fifty. It's just it's just mathematically impossible for that. In terms of the second question, I could see why people might wonder that. Why even be in it if you can't play for the championship? And yet we've seen the opposite to be true. We've seen schools like Appalachian State. And, and other FCS powers who have won or, or contended regularly for national championships decide that they would rather be up at FBS where they're never going to win a national championship and where their best-case scenario most seasons is going to be playing in uh, a bowl game in Mobile, Alabama. So for them, the prestige of being an FBS seems to outweigh being on a completely even playing field and being able to win a championship. 
All right. This question is from Eric, a Tar Heel in Madison. Stu and Bruce, great podcast. Love y'all's writing. My question is, you guys keep mentioning Larry Fedora as a candidate for possible big-time job openings in the offseason. As a UNC fan, I know we will always be a basketball school. But in year five, he has built a very solid program with steadily building fan support. I'm skeptical that he would leave for another job that would have exponentially higher pressure and expectations on the head coach. Do you all really feel he would jump at the opportunity to get a quote-unquote better job if it was offered? You know, the morning that we're recording this, the USA Today annual list of coaches' salaries came out. You know what mm-hmm. Larry Fedora makes? It's under 2.5. I know that. And according to USA Today, it's not even 2. I mean, it's like 74th in the country. Not to say that he doesn't have a big extension waiting for him, but... Yeah, that's going to go up either way, whether he stays in Chapel Hill or moves on. Look, Larry Fedora is a, is a Texas guy. I think he's probably more... I don't think he would want to be at a basketball school. I think he wants to be at a place where it's not to say you can't compete for a national title at North Carolina, because I think you can. But my gut is that even if it's Baylor, I think he would have a seriously hard time saying no. And finally, Bruce, this one from David. You know how we mentioned earlier that you're calling a a Stanford uh, Arizona game this week that doesn't start till 11 p.m. Eastern. A lot of people sometimes get frustrated with the Pac-12's TV deals. Well, David is frustrated because he says, uh, my question, can you explain why the Pac-12 doesn't want me to watch Pac-12 games? I very much wanted to see the Colorado-Stanford game last weekend. It was treated instead to an ancient UCLA basketball game. Why? Because I live in Southern California. What the hell is Larry Scott thinking? What is Larry Scott thinking, Stu? Larry Scott is thinking, and I don't even necessarily know that it's him, but Pac-12 Network, when they launched four years ago launched a national network and a bunch of regional networks and wanted the cable operators to carry both. And unbeknownst to me, because I do have the national network, a lot of them opted against choosing the national network and only carrying the regional networks. So now, in an attempt to try to get them to carry the national network, they're not putting all the football games on the regional networks. If if you're in Oregon and you only have the Oregon version of the Pac-12 network, you're going to get Oregon games you're not going to get the other games they did this during basketball too i think it's lame i do too and i think and i apologize for people who are going to think this is very provincial what i'm about to say but i think it's the worst idea as it relates to southern california and northern california because there as i'm sure david is there are tons of of fans and grads from a lot of other schools beyond ucla and usc who live in southern california Heck, we work with about a dozen Arizona people. Just like probably in your area, especially in Silicon Valley, there are fans of just more than Cal and Stanford there. To the idea that we're going to hyper-localize it, I I get it more at Oregon. I get it in Washington and certainly in in Arizona and Colorado and Utah, if you even get it. But in those metropolitan places – you know, I, I'm not even sure I really get it like a city like Denver or whatever. You know, yeah, I get there's probably way more CU people, but I just don't think you're serving the fans. You know, the SEC has great uh, pride in its conference and its footprint. Uh, if there's an out-of-conference game, they probably are rooting for the SEC school because it, it's like kind of a rising tide lifts all boats. Whereas the Pac-12 seems to be so hyper-local that I feel like they're kind of undermining their own their own branding. Yeah, I just think that this thing has been kind of mismanaged from the beginning. Uh, you know, one decision that they made and they stand by is that instead of, uh, in the case of the Big Ten, the SEC, the coming ACC, all of those networks are either co-owned or fully owned by ESPN or Fox. Pac-12 decided to go at it on their own. The positive of that is that they retain 100% of the ownership and thus 100% of the profits. Um, the bad news is uh, they don't have uh, that muscle to help with distribution. You know, you know a lot of the ESPN ones in, in particular, the way they get those on the air is to bundle them with other networks. Like Longhorn Network has gotten on a bunch of places because when the deals for ESPN and ESPN2 came up and they had to you know, negotiate the next deal, they threw Longhorn Network in there. And so Pac-12 is just struck. That's why they can't get on DirecTV because they have no negotiating leverage with them. And now apparently... They can't get these cable carriers to budge on carrying their national network. I know there's a lot of great teams and other sports that that are on the Pac-12 network. 
you know, a lot of Olympic sports. Ultimately, your number one single calling card is football. You only have so many football games a year. Why deny your fans those games? I'm with you. I sometimes think that they're very smart people over there, but I think sometimes they overthink things. I got one last thing for you, Bruce. People are on my side on the Arby's issue. Uh, it's been tweeted about a couple really? times. Yeah. It's been tweeted at me. Did you notice this morning? We were getting tweeted at constantly about Arby's because of a story that they are launching a venison sandwich in some markets, which I think is awesome, by the way. Are you going out to grab the venison sandwich? I don't know that it's available in my market, but most people wrote in saying that they didn't understand where you were coming from. Lots of people eat at Arby's. They love Arby's. They go to Arby's all the time. So suck it. <laughs> So this is basically like so. There's there's two arguments we've had. One, I think the title of what's your this year's column called "Immediate Recovery." Immediate recovery is just kind of a shoulder shrug and the Arby's thing. So um, speaking of arguments, we have something we have to figure out how we're going to settle. How are we going to decide who goes to the Fiesta Bowl and who goes to the Peach Bowl? Ooh, that's right. This is a really sad sports writer argument. It involves the hotel. Yeah, it has nothing to do with the actual bowl game. The people that run the Peach Bowl are great. But, uh, you know, you're talking about, it's a long time. You're there for almost a week. Is it going to be at the luxurious Camelback Resort in Scottsdale, Arizona, or somewhere in downtown Atlanta in December? I think, since you're practically an Atlanta native and have all those people you grew up with that, who live there, I would think you'd want to see them and go hang out with them for a couple of days. I do have some friends who live in Atlanta. There you go. I uh, saw some of them recently. But here's my counter argument. You have made, in fact, as recently as earlier this week, made mention of your love for Chick-fil-A. I didn't, whoa, Chick I didn't say I love Chick-fil-A. I've been with you at SEC Media Days. You like to go in for Chick-fil-A. It's the Chick-fil-A Peach Bowl, and it's completely wasted on me because I can't have it. <laughs> as you know, I have a dairy issue, and I can't have their buttermilk fried chicken. So it would be completely wasted on me, all the free Chick-fil-A that they have at that. I think you should take advantage of it. But what about all your friends? Well, my, my best friend from college, Brett Curlin, lives in Phoenix. So, you know, that one works out either way. All right, well, that's where we leave it for now. I think so far I'm winning this argument. You can maybe come up with your counter-argument for next time. Maybe send your emails to theaudiblepod at gmail.com. And when you do so, think of a, some sort of challenge Bruce and I can do to figure this out. And as always, if you enjoy The Audible, please subscribe at iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. We'll see you next time.